Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy 300th birthday. The big 300. You know, as a big cricket fan, a triple century is like a big deal. Does it have a name? A triple century. Oh, so it's not like called a Googie or a... No. When I was young, Gary Sobers had the... Uh, cricket record for the highest ever score, I think, in Test cricket, which was 365 not out. Um, but then I think it got beaten by somebody who got 499, or by somebody who got more, or maybe it was first class cricket. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to look this up. You are like a vague stato. <laughs> I know, it's like I, I'm a stato, but without the sort of stats, really. <laughs> so, I, right, okay, you see, so Brian Lara. Scored 501 yes. not out. Oh, no, somebody... DPMD Jayawardena got 374 for Sri Lanka versus South Africa. We were thinking of doing a competition for the 300th episode, which was win a night out with Ed. <laughs> but after that, I'm worried that we won't get any entrance. Well, the second prize will be two nights out with Ed. <laughs> I was thinking on the way to this recording, you know... Did we think we'd be... If we'd, say, if we'd said to each other at the beginning, we're going to do 300... Do you think we'd have said yes? I think you might have used your old um, I'll take it under consideration line. I think that's true. I mean, it does seem extraordinary. You haven't aged a bit. No, I've aged a lot. So how many years is it then? Six? I think, yeah, it's six. Five and a bit. Five and three quarters or something. Yeah, I think so. Um, I've made a note of some shows and I thought you could uh, guess whether they have done more or fewer episodes. Oh, I love your higher or lower. I love love your higher or lower sort of malarkey bullseye that's a tough one i'd say fewer 351 they beat us yeah grand designs fewer 
Yes, 212. Strictly Come Dancing. Not Come Dancing in its original iteration, but just the modern Strictly Come Dancing. Fewer? 366. Oh, no, more. Made in Chelsea? Fewer. Yes, 282. Last of the Summer Wine? Fewer. But only by five, 295 episodes of that in total. Doctor Who? Uh, more. Yeah, we're nowhere near. 871 episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah. Although 300 individual stories. Mm. So we're on level oh, good pegging. research. Thank you. And I thought that leads us nicely on to Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Because... This is a special, isn't it? It really is. Maybe we should title this The Return of the Doctor. Yes. I mean, not that the Doctor was ever here before episode 300. <laughs> or we could, like, you know, let our creative juices flow, you know, Ed, Jeff and the Daleks. I mean, that would be a misleading title for it. What, was there no Daleks on it? Yes. <laughs> Ed, Jeff and the Mystery of the Daleks? Reform the House of Time Lords? I always loved their titles. I love the music and I love the titles. Well, we haven't, we haven't even said why we're talking about Doctor Who. Just because we like Doctor Who. Well, there is that. And our 300th episode features a special guest. Very special guest. Very special guest. guest. This, is, this is part two of our live show from the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon. Last week, you heard what I think was a brilliant conversation about climate education. This week, one of our finest thespians... David Tennant! Yes. I really wish I'd said at the beginning, which rips off a Joan Byers thing that I talked about on the, I think, episode you were aware. I wish, I wish I'd said, oh, my goodness, you're David Tennant. This is the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. I didn't say that. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? And he was such a great guest. Do you know, I occasionally meet people or see characters in films and I think there's such a ball of energy and positivity. Yeah. I wish I could be more like that, but my uh, my fundamental personality undermines it somewhat. And you don't think I'm in that category, obviously. I think you have your moments. Right, yeah. But he was he was just wonderful. I think he's got incredible charisma, actually. You know how they say about Jeb Bush, he's low energy, or Donald Trump used to say he's low energy. David is exactly the opposite, isn't he? He's just high energy. But so sort of positive with it as positive, well. Positive, positive. He's yeah. infectious. Infectious. Yes. I'm proud to have it as the 300th. Absolutely. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is, uh, did, your, did your lads ever go through a horrible histories phase? Yes-ish. Okay, so Gina's been mad on it for a while, and we've recently discovered the sitcom that the cast of Horrible Histories went on to do, Ghosts, which is a great family sitcom. Have you watched it? I haven't, no. Very late to the party on this. In fact, I think the fifth and final series is airing on the BBC this year. But the, the, the premise is that a couple inherit a big stately home that is inhabited by the ghosts of previous occupants of that land, dating back to a caveman. But only only the wife can see the ghosts, the husband's ghost. And, uh, yeah, it's great fun. And it is, so it's like an educational rent-a-ghost. Rent-a-ghost. Yeah, I mean, there's not much education and you in let it, but... your spirits move. Oh, if they ever do a reboot, I think you'd be a great Mr. Mika. Right. Anyway, I just loved Rent-a-Ghost as a child. But anyway, ghosts or ghost, is it? Yes, yeah. I think there are so few things that are real family shows these days and uh, I think it absolutely fits that bill. I love that. You you sounded quite Mary Whitehouse there. (laughs) There are so few things that are family shows. Don't get me wrong, there's a little bit of innuendo in it for the uh, for the adults, a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I was thinking about that earlier, but I was, I was trying to describe what a family sitcom was to my wife, and I was talking about 
watching Are You Being Served as a kid. And the innuendo in that show, that wasn't double entendre, yeah. that was single entendre, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. So, yes, recommended. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is you. Oh, so you couldn't think of a reason to be cheerful and you just <laughs> yeah. saying that in a panic then. You forgot to, you forgot to come up with Yeah, one. that's more or less true. No. I meant to say, actually, when you asked me my reason to be cheerful, what I actually meant to say it was you and... No, the, no, too late. This incredible uh, achievement of 300 uh, no, episodes. I think, I think, you know, you rescued me from oblivion, but it's been a blast. I'm not saying that because we're about to stop, but uh, it's been a blast. Likewise. Oh, oh I've got a reason to be cheerful. Oh, so can we just delete that? No, <laughs> because I can leave that one in. I met somebody on a train and I was... You know, I've been peddling this, like, um, confectionery machine, healthy confectionery machines. Yes, a vending machine that has healthy food in it. I, I finally discovered somebody who was sort of taking it seriously. He was in that sort of broad line of work. And uh, I think that they've got some line in machines, maybe. But he was one of the few first people not to sort of laugh my idea totally out of court. I'm worried about you, Ed. I'm worried it's some kind of confidence trickster and he's going to ask you for a £1,000. Yeah, well, that, from is po- that, that, that is possible. That is possible. Anyway, he came up to me on a train. And uh, so uh, that's just a sort of half reason to be cheerful. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live. Welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyds. Good interval. Do you want us to just get on with it and, yeah, uh, yeah. and get David Tennant yeah. out? Yeah, I think so. Let's welcome... Most of them have come for David Tennant. Yes, yeah, let's give them what they want. Yeah. Please welcome David Tennant. <laughs> He's so young. Once we're down, we can't get back up again. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Um, it's David Tennant. Hello. <laughs> David, Ed, Ed was really keen to talk to you because, you know, you were in this role in the, uh, in the earlier part of this century and, and somehow you've managed to get back there. Uh-huh. Uh, Ed, Ed, are you looking for some pointers? I'm not, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you, are, you are reappearing as the Doctor, is that right? The it's true. It's it's a cat's out of the bag. Yeah. Well, I've already reappeared. I am the current doctor. I am currently. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. He, he is both the tenth and the fourteenth doctor. Thank you, Jeff. That's yes. correct. Yes. Yeah. Well my, my son has become a doctor who fanatic these past few months since that episode, and I was really torn about whether to to bring him today. Right. But my wife really doesn't want him to become any kind of nepo baby, so she forbade me <laughs> from from bringing him. Right. But can can we? If, can we just record a little video for him? <laughs> now, I thought this could be a bit of a surprise. So if I, if I tell him somebody wants to speak to him, and I'll point it at Ed, then you can say something. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll be disappointed. Yeah, OK, I'm the disappointment. You're the, to be and, clear and then, about this. What's his name? He's called Eugene. Eugene. He's Eugene. seven. Gene okay. to his yes. friends, yeah. OK, here we go. Hello, Eugene. I have somebody here who wants to speak to you. Hi, Gene. How are you? <laughs> So nice to see you. Forget about that, Gene. <laughs> hi, Gene. How are you? Me and a few hundred of my closest friends want to say hi to you. Say hello to Gene. I hear you're a Doctor Who fan, which means you have great taste. So I just wanted to drop by and say 
Allons-y, nice to meet you. Here's back to your boring old dad. <laughs> oh, he's going to love it. Great. He's going to love that. I think did I, I played you... my role well. You did, yeah. Ed, Ed, um... Decoy. That was the role. Just avoid it, I think, yeah. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd had uh, aspirations to be an actor at school, didn't you? Yeah, I don't think so. On the podcast a few times, you've given us a to be or not to be. Oh, God. Do you, do you no, to... no, no, I definitely this don't. This is the place to do it, Ed. I Come definitely... on. What is, the, what is the key to that line? Ooh. <laughs> uh... How many times have you done the line? Only as many times as I did that play. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean... Hundreds. No, probably about a hundred. I mean, that was about. Yeah. We probably did about that many performances. I think with all these things, it's getting rid of the expectation of history, the the, the, the chant along Shakespeare's greatest hits element, and just try and make sense of it. Just you know, and, everybody's sort of waiting for it. I know it, they are you? a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, and you can't really deny the audience that either because it is a bit like it's like sort of me and a bacon sandwich type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> And you just can't deny it's it. It's the greatest the... hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yes, it would be like going to see the Proclaimers and they don't sing 500 Miles. You know, you've, you're kind of... They've got to be there. But we did cut a bit from the middle of To Be or Not To Be. Yeah, because it, I always thought it was a bit flabby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We just wanted to spice it up a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was partly because there is a bit in the middle, who would fardles bear? That's quite hard for a modern audience to really uh, follow. And who would be, what? Who would fardles bear? There's a bit where it goes, who would do this? Who would fardles bear? It's just who's the fardles? language gets... Exactly, who's fardles? The language gets a little chewy. And, and I think, you know, we're doing these plays for now, so make them accessible. Don't rewrite them, but you're going to take bits out of them anyway. And I quite like the idea of taking a bit out of the middle of the most famous speech in history. Nobody noticed. <laughs> and it was just a way of f- feeling like we were being a little Presumably bit that's punk because they're it. all waiting for the, waiting for the line. Well, they, because who would fardles be? Nobody remembers yeah. that bit. But to be or not to be, the first chunk everybody remembers. And then, they, then it slips into kind of a vague memory of what it's... But it's actually... That, that speech in particular is quite hard to make actual sense of. It's quite... It goes quite... To quite philosophical, slightly esoteric, slightly it, the the sense of it does slightly slip, which arguably is quite is the point of what Shakespeare was, the point that he was trying to make, uh, you know, as Hamlet struggles for meaning. All you're trying to do as an actor in that moment is communicate the sense of it, which is all you're ever trying to do. But th- that's the bit you have to reach for to not get caught in the weeds of the the, the chant along aspect. You know. What's your history with the RSC? You, you were involved from. Pretty, pretty young. Yeah. Yes. I'm getting on for 30 years ago now, yeah. And who, who were the titans who were still around at that time? In the first play that I did here, uh, which was As You Like It, we had John Woodvine playing Jaques, who was a great sort of RSE stalwart. I mean, he still is. He was then, later on, he was in Hamlet as well. So he was probably our uh, oldest luminary. Sort of. And that's one of the great things about a company like this. You have actors who've been with the company for decades, often. And how did it all start for you, getting into... The business of acting. I went, to, I went to drama school. I decided I was going to do it at home in Paisley with very few uh, precedents or any real notion as to how one would from go about it. From what age? From what age did you... I would of... probably about three or four. Three or four? I know, I know. It doesn't really make sense, does it? 
I've got a three-year-old at the moment and she's so kind of carefree and crazy and bananas. I think, how was I having conversations about acting? This doesn't seem like... Who are your role models at that point? Jeffrey from Rainbow? I mean, who is a three-year-old <laughs> looking at but Bungle? Well, with sort of withering inevitability, it was watching Doctor Who. And that's why I can date it. Because the thing that I remember is John Pertwee turning into Tom Baker. Uh, which was in 1974, and I was three. And I know I saw that, because I remember it, and I remember coming out of that, a conversation about what actors were, about that it was people pretending. And I remember from that moment, on some very sort of basic level, thinking, that's, oh, I'll do that then. And when did it become more... It just very gradually grew up. You did it at school? You did it? A little bit, not much. Was it seen as sort of weird to be into this at school or not really? Or were you encouraged? Though I was neither encouraged nor discouraged. There really wasn't anyone around who knew anything about it. So there was a plays and stuff. A bit, a little bit when when they happened, but there weren't a lot of them in our school. There was a couple, and I certainly got involved where I could. It's not like my parents were in it. There was nobody who, who could tell me what the route was. But luckily, the idea sort of evolved with me. There was a drama school in Glasgow, which, wasn't, which was only sort of five miles away from oh, us. I so I, I quite quickly decided I'd go there. After Went, school? Uh, well, well I, I started school? doing uh, Saturday morning classes there. And then at 17, left school school and went to drama school. Yeah. And, and as, you've, as you move through your career and you met people from different backgrounds, are you struck by how how possible that path would have looked if you're from a more privileged background? Well, certainly, there wasn't, yes. I mean, possible, I don't know how possible. Yes, I suppose, of course, if you're from an acting family, um, which is now the family that I, you know, we now now have. I now have children who are from an acting family. And I suppose, yes. Are they they forming them into a troupe? Is there any... We will be... We're we're going on tour. uh, (laughs) As the Von Trapps, the Von Tenants. Um, <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. Yes, it's a different route. I mean, my, my wife's an actor too, and she, her parents were both actors. So yes, there was a sort of different way in, I guess. What did your parents think about it as you were growing up and going on about it was being... a sort of whimsy. Yeah. Uh, because they, I think at first they thought, well, that's, that's, that's funny. That's nice. Without any sense that, it, that it's what I would actually do. And then when they realised I was quite determined, they were like, well, let's... Let's make sure you do a course where you could become a drama teacher, where it could sort of <laughs> transition, in, quite sensibly, where it could transition into something where you could actually Make have a the hope of making a living. Yeah. So they were always quite keen, not to discourage me, but, but to make sure I had other options, other sort of escape hatches. And you started in a socialist theatre company called 784, is that right? My first job was with 784 Scottish People's Theatre. What was 784? Well, 784 famously is named uh, after the statistic that 7% of the population own 84% of the wealth. So it was formed as a, an agitprop theatre company, yeah. Uh, and it was still going strong in Glasgow when I dra- graduated from drama school. It wasn't quite at the sort of pointy end of its activism by then but it was still doing I mean the first play I did with them was a Brecht play we did a, a production of The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui which is a play about warning against uh, the, fascism, uh, the rise yeah. of fascism yeah that's not specifically why I took the job I mean I, I, straight out of drama school you'll take anything um, I, I mean had there been a, a sort of right wing equivalent I might not have, <laughs> I might not have felt terribly comfortable but I would probably have said yes <laughs> I don't know what that play would have been about. Were you idealistic? Were you politicised? Well, I was, yes. I mean, certainly I've always 
had a, I, I, what I would just take to be a sense of the obvious, uh, you know, the sense of um, being awake to the idea of community and uh, an idea of the sense that we're all in it to look out for each other. My father was a minister in the Church of Scotland, um, which I suppose you arguably has a certain theatricality to it. Parallels um, with Gordon like Brown. Gordon Brown. Like Gordon Brown. Like Gordon Brown. Exactly like Gordon Brown, yeah. Both, both sons, of the, sons of the mans. And you went to listen to him every su- Sunday? Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't political with a, with a capital P, but he certainly was. I mean, I think if you preach the gospel, you preach a sort of form of socialism, I would argue. You know, it's about looking out for each other. It's about community. It's about making sure that the least in society is looked after by everyone else and that there, is, that there are safety nets and that, that we, are, we care for each other and that we are kind. Please, God. Uh, there's a lack of that around these days. Um, so th- I suppose if, if any sense of morality and you know, and I'm not particularly religious anymore, but I, but I certainly took from it the morality of that, certainly. And did you, when you became Doctor Who, yeah. did you feel like it was realising the sort of aspiration you had at three when you'd seen John Pertwee turn into Tom Baker? Or, or was it wrong, wrong to put it... The, I quite... mean, it was a very odd... Because obviously Doctor Who had been off air for a long time, so even though it had been it an, early, exist, an yeah. early inspiration for me, it wasn't something I really imagined... I would ever be part 2000 of. and... 2005 is yeah, when it came back. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's when I got yeah. cast because I came in at the end of the, that yeah. first series. It was just very odd and surreal. Surreal that this show that I'd loved as a kid so much was back at all. And then that I was involved in it. Did you get tapped on the shoulder? Kind of, yeah. I, I happened to be working with Russell T. Davis, who was the writer showrunner, on a show called Casanova that he'd written, which was a miniseries about Casanova. So I was getting to know him, and at the same time, he was making the first series of Doctor Who. So I would keep going, come on, you've got to just, just put me in it somewhere. I'll, just, I'll be in a Cyberman suit, just please. And he was weirdly resistant. And I thought, that's just rude. <laughs> because there's lots of lovely parts. You've released, you've cast me as Casanova. You can't think I'm rubbish. Why are you not? And then towards the end of filming, he said, come round to my house. I've got some rough cuts. You're a fan. You'll enjoy this. So I went round to his house and saw a rough cut of the very first episode. And then a rough cut of the episode with the Dalek, which was episode six. He showed me these two. And I was just in heaven, I'm thinking, just sitting back and having thinking, what a treat to be one of the first people in the country to get to see the new iteration of the show that was such an inspiration to me that I've loved. And at the end of that, himself and Julie Garner, the exec producer, who was there as well, who was, again, the exec producer of both shows, as the tape ran out, they sort of said, so we, obviously we, we invited you around because we want you to see this, but obviously we've also got a bit of a proposition. At which point they said how would you feel about taking over? And at this point, there was no sense that Chris Eccleston wasn't going to stay for a long time. And, that, and, and it was an out-of-body experience, to be sure. And I laughed. I found it hysterically It's like funny. me ringing up people, as I used to have to do, sitting with the opposition to say, would you like a peerage? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> people often had a strange reaction. How come you never offered David a peerage? I know, it was an oversight. <laughs> Things might have been different. Yeah. Uh, so, so go on. Yeah, and I, and I laughed. I found it hysterically funny. But then Russell, of course, Russell T. Davis grew up as a massive fan of Doctor Who. He was hugely inspired to do what he did and is now doing again because Doctor Who meant so much to him as a child. So he had got already sort of gone on the journey that I was sort of now well, What on. did you think as you walked away that evening? Did you say yes on the no, spot? I, no, I didn't, I, because Russell wouldn't let me. Because he very wisely went, don't say anything now. 
have a good old think about this because this, this, you'll, have, you'll have a myriad reactions to this over the next few days, which is exactly what I did. I, I went from going, this is, this is absurd, this is amazing, to then thinking that I can never do this, what if I break it? To also think, because at the time, it hadn't been on and there was a lot of, there was a, there was a sense in the world that bringing back Doctor Who might be a terrible So it idea. hadn't yet come back. It hadn't, hadn't been on yet. It was, I mean, it was imminent, yeah. it was about to happen. And my agent at the time, uh, she's retired now, although she was one of the finest agents in the business, but she did go, you are not doing that. <laughs> that is a terrible idea. Uh, to be fair, she later revised her opinion. Um, but but for, so, so for a while I thought, I'm going to do it, then I'm not going to do it, then I definitely wasn't going to do it. It was a terrible idea. And then I woke up one morning about 10 days later and went, oh, well, I can't let anyone else do it. So I'm going to have to do it. And even if it is a terrible idea, it'll be my terrible idea. And luckily, it it seemed to work out. What do you think about your mindset meant that it was such a positive experience for you? Because it it can end up defining people and you you get the sense that across a lifetime, people make peace with it, but sometimes they can want to run from it. What what did you clock that meant you... Has it been bad for anyone who's done it? Well, I think think some of the actors, I mean, I, I... don't go that deep on it, yeah. but it seems to me that people want to keep it at arm's length for a while and, you know, the, the passion of the fans can be very exciting, but it can be a bit all-consuming as well. It's, it's, it's a lot, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hugely popular show and it does define your life to an extent. I've been very lucky to go on and do lots of other things and, uh, and, and Doctor Who has, been, has played a part in allowing some of them to happen, for sure. But it, you are aware, I think, when you take something like that on, and certainly maybe because I'd loved the show and grown up with it and was at various times in my life fairly obsessed with it, I was aware that it would cast a long shadow. And that's part of the calculation when you take it on. But, it, but maybe because I always loved it and still do love it, it, that felt like a fairly small price to pay, I suppose. So were you watching it the next, uh, the next series after you left? Were you watching it from episode one or did you need a bit of space from it? I couldn't not. I was too... And, and it's a, that's a weird thing as well. After you left? Yes. You were carried on watching it? Of course! <laughs> we watch you're, it You're still week. a member of the Labour. In fact, you're, you're in the shadow cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's true, but... I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. The thing I hate the most is having to go to Prime Minister's questions and watch someone else having to do it. Right. I feel deep sympathy for him. Right. Uh, and I, I wonder just if think, being the Doctor is a more positive experience. Well, maybe that's true. <laughs> Maybe that's true. That's so interesting. Oh, no, it's, it's part of our... It's a family ritual. We still watch it. Two of my kids are here today. We watch it all the time, don't we, kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you've never resisted going back, because you've gone back a number of times, haven't you, to d- take part in Christmas episodes and other I things? Did, I did one special when the show was 50. Yeah. And I've gone back to right. do these three specials because the show's 60. Yeah. And I can still run. Uh, and hopefully, if they ask me back in 10 years' time, I wouldn't need CGI to make my legs move. And, uh, <laughs> and was it hard to leave? Hard, um, you did it for how many years? I did sort of three full years and then a bunch of specials. So Are you asking of... him if he wanted to go? No, no, but I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to... something for that guy over there. Yeah, I can, I That's can... a very specific <laughs> reference, Jeff. Yeah. I can imagine thinking you're going to move on from it is also quite hard. It's difficult, yeah. It is difficult. And, and at the same time, it's, like we've said already, it's a lot and it's all-consuming. So, uh, and, and then, you know, I w- it, it opened a lot of doors too. So, yeah. so part of you as the kind of young, hungry, well, I was younger, uh, 
a hungry actor in their mid-30s thinks, well, I've got to capitalise on this too. I've got to see what else there is in the world. And I went off and played Hamlet at the RSC. So, you know, it allowed me to do things like that, which um, might not have been possible otherwise. So it's a, it's, yeah, difficult to leave because it was such a positive experience, but also you feel like now's the time. And it was absolutely the right time to go. And it's been lovely to revisit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And Macbeth next. Yeah. At the Donmar. Yeah, that's right. Not at the RSC. I feel slightly sitting on the stage of the RSC. I feel slightly. Oh, is there like like some, some kind of etiquette them. breach going on here? I'm not sure. Nobody from the RSC's phoned me up and told me off yet. But <laughs> there is a bit of a. Uh, but you know, the Donmar asked. The RSC are doing Macbeth any minute. They never asked. I don't know who's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably someone marvellous. Have you done Macbeth before? I've done it on the wireless. But I've, the not, wireless. I've done it on the wireless, but I've not done it in the actual... Have, when, like when you don't remember the words. Like doing it on the, when did you do it on the wireless? Not that long ago, actually, quite recently. Yeah. Do people still call it the wireless? No, I, <laughs> just me. Am I supposed to say the name of that play on stage or have I just cursed us? I don't care, but there's probably people backstage who are now doing various rituals to cleanse the place. <laughs> there's salt being thrown around. So just so we know, when does, it, when, do you, when does it start and all that? I think it opens middle of December. Runs over Christmas. It's effectively a pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> Sorry. And are you, looking forward, are you looking forward to it? I'm looking forward to it with trepidation, yes. I'm very excited. But also, you know, these, they're, they're big old things. They're sort of Olympic events for actors, these big parts. And it's a huge thrill. When I look back on Hamlet now, it's, the, it's probably the thing I'm most proud that I've done, playing Hamlet for the Royal Shakespeare Company. But at the time, it was... Terrifying. I mean, the levels of anxiety was awful. And how, how did, did you manage it? Yeah, how did you manage that? I am not entirely sure. I mean, the, the, first, the first preview, I was uh, Lynn Darnley, who was the wonderful head of voice at the uh, RSE and a wonderful woman, uh, died not long ago and is hugely missed. Um, she found me on the floor of my dressing room in the fetal position before the first preview. And were it not for Lynn... 
I don't know that I'd have made it on stage. So, uh, it was, yeah, these things are... Uh, what did she say to get you out of the people? She said, I, I, can't, I can't remember. But whatever it was, it was soothing and helpful and got me, got me out there. I think she reassured me that she'd seen other people finding it just as difficult. Because that's the thing you imagine. Kenneth Branagh's not like this, you know. Olivier found it easy. All that, you, know, you suddenly find yourself... You're at the RSC. You're in the. You've you've somehow managed to elbow your way into this this line of people who've had the the great honour to play this part. So even now, you get a sort of imposter syndrome. I, I think it gets worse. Yeah, I don't think that gets any easier. Well, it gets even worse. with a track record. Yeah, maybe the. I don't. Know, maybe it feels like you've got further to fall or something. I don't know. Or maybe you're just getting older and you're worried your brain will stop working. I'm not entirely sure what it is. How, how quickly can you go from, say, one of your kids on the phone saying, Dad, the, the wireless router's not working, to mm. on stage and in character? Depends when you switch your phone off before you go on stage. I mean, that's part of it, I suppose. It, it's a different job once you have a family. In a lovely way, you, it means you've got another point of concentration. Because it, you, can, you can get quite... Actors can be a little self-obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a little pleased with himself and a little, uh, perhaps a little self-important sometimes. Uh, and, and although it is important and we do care deeply about what we do and, and you know, we'll, we'll take great efforts to make sure we do it as well as we possibly can, uh, you know, being a dad is ultimately more important. So you, it does put things in perspective. Do you have a sort of ritual you do before you go on stage? I, I will develop rituals depending on what the show is. I'm not superstitious, and yet clearly I am a little bit because when it. But each show will have its own rituals. What you remember one? Off they're the top not. Of your head. They're not weird. They're not. Like uh, listen to a certain song. song yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen to a certain. I usually have an album that I have to play from the half hour call onwards. What was the last album you used for that? It was Miles Davis, actually. Weirdly, because the last play I was doing was. Um, which I had lots of I had a musical soundtrack going under it, a lot of which was was jazz. So it ended up. It wouldn't usually be something that specific, that linked to the show. Usually it would be more, usually be more of a mood I was sort of chasing. Hamlet was a Coldplay album. It's also slightly random. I sort of land on something and then it becomes, and that's where I suppose the superstition comes in. I've landed on this as my album for this show and therefore it always has to be. And it doesn't necessarily make sense. But, but the last play I did was, was about someone who was slightly... It was a sort of memory play and they were remembering things through music and so a lot of that was jazz. So, so I, I ended up on with, a, with a piece of jazz playing before the show every night. Are you geared up for Mania later this year? Will it feel different once, once Doctor Who is back on air, the 60th anniversary, once those episodes are airing? Does it feel different to you being out in the world? When are they airing? I'm not sure, really. I mean, I, it's, I'm just there for a minute. I'm holding the coat until Shuti Gatwa arrives, who's going to be just sensational. I've, got, I've seen him a little bit on set and he's breathtaking. So I just feel sort of like I'm holding the coat till he arrives, to be honest. But because you'd never get to play against him, I guess. Not really, no. No, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, obviously, I, I got to... When, when, when Doctor Who was 50, I got to play opposite Matt Smith and John Hurt, which was thrilling to, to be opposite someone who's playing the same part. Well, that, that, that's a little, a different sort of trickle of excitement. But no, I'm, I, we, I'm sort of, it's just, well, Catherine Tate's back as well. So the two of us are back pretending 15 years never happened. <laughs> Pathetic, isn't it? Give us at the end a reason to be cheerful on brand, David. What's your reason to be cheerful? Do you know what's making me cheerful at the moment? Uh, is that it's Pride Month. And the fact that Pride Month 
is existing and is flourishing and is something that's happening at a time when the world seems to be getting, in, in some corners, worryingly intolerant and weirdly backward. And where the word woke is being weaponized. I mean, who doesn't want to be awake? Yeah. Crying out loud. That that should be suggested as something to be sneered at. That's an aspiration. And that when I was at school, calling somebody gay was like the worst thing you could be called in the playground. And now we celebrate it. And it makes me a little bit emotional. But that, that, that it just gives people a chance to be seen and celebrated and to be just combating some of that snide nastiness that is... When Target, I have to take down. When Target in America have to take down their displays because people are so intolerant. I think we all need to put up our rainbow flags and we need to march and shout. And I didn't expect this to get me this emotional. I'll be honest with you. But... But, you know, you just want, you want your children to grow up in a world that is kind and you want your children to be kind and you want your children to be accepted for whoever they are. Whatever they want to be, they should be allowed to be whoever they want to be. And, you know, everyone else just needs to butt out. Totally right. Um, So that makes me cheerful. 100% right. That was just brilliant. You're totally right. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Thanks, thank for having me. Pleasure. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring no, the tone down. Don't, don't. Please don't. Please don't apologise. You know, it's, the, it's usually me. And also, <laughs> I mean, sometimes it can be me. I mean, it is the biggest single change. We're very similar ages. We were remarking yeah. before we came on stage. Yeah. It's the biggest single change in our lifetime, isn't it? Yeah. When you think when you have so many reasons to think the world is getting worse. Yeah. The way in which the world has progressed. Yes. In relation. When you look at it, when you take a step back and see how far we've come, it, is, it does give you hope. And it does, because sometimes when you're right in the middle of day to day, you think, where are we going, guys? Come we were on. the era of Section 28. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff. yeah. But it has to be fought for. Oh, we have to. Yes, we can't day. take our foot off the gas. That's the thing. And we can't, we can't uh, expect that we will always travel in the right direction towards acceptance. We've, got to, we've all got to be fighting that fight every day. Totally right. Brilliant. Can we thank the brilliant David Tennant, ladies and gentlemen? You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, one of the things that has sustained us across these 300 episodes is what we receive from you. Please keep emailing us your thoughts on, uh, on what you've heard and what you would like to hear. You can do it through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Matt Davis, who says... Hi, Jeff and Ed. Hi. And the fantastic team behind the scenes. Uh, uh, Firstly, I would like to thank you for keeping me company. I'm currently on a sabbatical from work, cycling around Europe for four months. And I have been listening to your extensive back catalogue on the road. How how do you feel about listening and cycling, Ed, from a safety perspective? 
I think okay if you have bone conductor headphones. I'm glad you asked me that question, Jeff. I'm now an expert on these questions. I don't think you should have the headphones in your ears because then you won't be able to hear the traffic, but they can sit above your ears and then it's okay. Good. And I knew you'd have an answer for that. I knew you'd have an answer for that, yeah. And I knew you would have learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah. Matt continues, the amazing stories have been a constant source of inspiration and continue to harden my resolve to work towards a more just society, particularly on climate change. I listened to your episode on the right to disconnect today and it made me think, even before COVID, I would go above and beyond to separate work from home, taking my shirts into work on a Monday so that I could then commute in non-work clothes. As you might imagine, with this commitment to separation, working from home was bleak and I was lucky enough to get an exemption to be able to work from the office on mental health grounds. In terms of the right to disconnect, I have found my membership of an advocacy for a strong union has been helpful in being able to disconnect. I think that touches on um, something we've talked about a few times, a, a very important role for unions in in the future definitely and i'm sympathetic on the shirts issue do you do that i go through phases of cycling in casual clothes and then they get a bit scrunched up i haven't quite solved the scrunched up problem you need somebody traveling behind you in a van with all your shirts i don't think that's very environmentally sound jeff do you want to do this next one this one comes from nayan thakurani and its subject is garden cities all around the world long-time listeners first time writer I'm sending this because I listened to your latest episode on garden cities, and I'm just so excited about this topic. I work as a senior consultant for a small business based in Deptford, London, focused on urban development and regeneration. You'll be pleased to know garden cities are alive and kicking in practice as well as in theory, as I have a number of live projects around the UK focusing on creating new communities inspired by this idea. Your episode also made me think how concepts in urban development diffuse themselves around the country and around the world, as the Garden City has also been known to influence policymakers as far as the Middle East and China. This is a topic known as policy mobility and policy transfer. And I thought it might be as fascinating to your podcast listeners as it is to me. Might I suggest it as a topic for a future episode? That sounds great. I'm very interested in the idea of policy mobility. Are we policy, policy mobility? We're sort of policy mobility, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're a conduit for policy mobility. And I've got a bonus one on Garden Cities. And this one comes from uh, Wes Ball. Um somebody who used to uh, work for me in the Labour Party, and he sent me this text. Ed, I can't believe I worked for you for four years, and yet you did a podcast on garden cities without thinking of me. In all that time, I clearly failed in communicating my singular intellectual passion. It was a fascinating insight from your three guests, always something slightly different to say. He says, I wrote a short dissertation on it at university. I haven't read it for at least 15 years, but dug it out this afternoon, and I'm shocked to discover that it's quite readable, and I'm not totally embarrassed. So he's attached it below. Always happy to chat garden cities more with you there. Towns designed for healthy living and so much more. So many lessons to learn for for the future. And he also says, P.S., when I stopped working for Hillary Ben, he gave me a book of election history and I gave him a copy of Howard's book. I've been trying to teach you politicians about it for decades. There you Poor go. old Wes. He's been wanging on at you for I, I don't know how long. I know. Isn't that sort of slightly... Well, it shows I'm not a very good listener, obviously. <laughs> well, thanks to Wes for adding, adding to that. Um, and finally, this comes from Lav Berrier. The subject is, does Ed normally dress like this? Says, hello, please could you have Ed explain the context behind this photograph? Love from Australia, Lav. Yeah, so I'd like to look at the picture. Ah, yes. This. What are, what are we looking at here, We're Ed? looking at me, Keir Starmer, Anna Sawa, uh, and Colin Smith, MSP, 
and we are on our way to an offshore wind farm and we are wearing all of the kitten caboodle. You really are, but there's there's a way in which you're walking which suggests some kind of, I don't know, crack squad of adventurers who are about to go in, get their hands dirty and sort out a situation. You're all holding hard hats in your hands, you're wearing high vis, you've got little life jacket things around your neck, and you're sort of staring into the middle distance as if you're a man who's seen a few things. I think I might be a man trying to make sure I don't fall over, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're doing a... Trying to pull one foot in front of the other in a stable way. (laughs) I think this is the, the most stereotypically macho picture of you I've ever seen. You don't mean stereotypically there, do you? Do I not? It's quite unusual. Uncharacteristically matched, yes, maybe. Yes. More to the point. I think this is one that the Millie fans would really get a kick out of. Yeah. Well, I also, th- I also think it looks like something that will em- inevitably end up on the pictures round of Have I Got News For You. Is that a good thing? I think so. Compared yeah. to some of my other pictures, I think it's not too bad. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the 300th outro, ho, ho. Can we tell them what happened on the intercom before the show? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> So, you know, backstage at a theatre, you, you will have seen it in shows and stuff. They have an intercom where the stage manager will say, Reasons Be Cheerful podcast, five minutes to stage. And it sort of uh, makes you feel a bit important, like you're sort of, you know, rubbing shoulders with the big sort of cheeses. Yeah, tre- treading the board. Treading the, the board. Ooh, there's, our, there's our curtain call. Anyway, um, the voice came over the intercom. Uh, which said, um, please can we have to the stage uh, David Miliband and <laughs> Jeff Lloyd? That's David Miliband and Jeff. <laughs> no. and, and, and then 10 seconds later, it went, that's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd to the stage, please. They obviously realised what had happened and tried to style it out. What can you say? It was a great moment. Another great moment for me was uh, as we left via the stage door, there were some people who'd obviously been hanging around to yeah. uh, get a photograph of David Tennant. And then, as a consolation prize, they were there to get a photograph with you as well. And a couple of people asked me for pity selfies. Sometimes I can see when people are taking pictures of me, you and them, that they're deliberately framing it in such a way that they'll be able to crop me out later. Yeah. Um, but this this lady came up to me and she had a poster for the event. There were lots of podcasts and uh, other shows on. It had the names of everybody performing. And she came up to me with this poster and a Sharpie. And she said, uh, well... Uh, I, th- I think I vaguely uh, recognise your name from somewhere, so uh, I suppose I'll get you to sign it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I said, what a lovely thing to hear. Was she saying it with a sort of humour? Oh, no, there was no humour. <laughs> oh, God, Jeff, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? Well, we should thank our guest, David Tennant. Just superb. And we should also thank our hosts, the Royal Shakespeare Definitely. Theatre. Every- everyone at the RSC. And the team was brilliant there. Yeah. They were just brilliant, so thank you. Emma Corsham is our audio producer and driver on this occasion. Yep. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Was she the navigator? Rachel was, yeah. They had the front seats, I had the back. Yeah, I think that's the right thing to do. Yes. Rachel's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the idents and our artwork is designed by... Henry Cullen. I think we should thank everybody who's worked on the show over the years. Maybe not by name. No. Because we have a hard enough job remembering yeah, the current but for ones. getting us to 300. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think? 
Absolutely, we salute all of them. 300 not out. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been 300 reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.